that accomplishes whatever you send it out to accomplish. And I pray that your word would speak into our lives today, the same word that created all things and spoke the cosmos into existence, that you would speak life into us again and help us to leave here different, more in love with you, more in love with your work and your creation. And I pray that we would be changed and transformed once again by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Let's dive right in. Luke chapter 3. We've got a long way to go in a little while to get there. So I'm going to go fast and hard as, fa- as fast as I can. If I'm going too fast, tell me to slow down. Let's dive in. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. The key is to read really fast and pretend like you know what these words mean, and then everybody thinks you know how to pronounce them. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So Luke gives us these religious and political leaders of the day and uh, the people who are in power of the time. And that really helps us to understand when this is happening. The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign was around AD 27 or 28. So the time of John's ministry is fixed for us. And the place of John's ministry, his emergence out of the wilderness, was into this region around the Jordan River. And it says, And the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. If you remember, if you've been here uh, since the beginning of the series, you'll remember back in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah was John's father. And he had prophesied that John, when he grew up, would be a prophet who would preach and teach and prepare the way for the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And here that prophecy is coming to fruition. And we're told that the word of the Lord came to John. That's a really common statement in the Old Testament. You see it over 220 times in the Old Testament where the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, to this prophet, to that prophet. So this is God revealing himself to the prophets so that they may be his mouthpiece and occasionally his, his penmanship to articulate the message of God to the world. Now, why is that important? It's important because John's authority and power came not from himself, but from God. Luke 1.15 said he was filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. So now like an old school prophet, he comes to preach the word of God in the power of the spirit. And that means something for us. It means that even though we live 2,000 years later, we better listen to John's message Because it's God's message, and there's nothing we need more than a clear word of God, yeah? I'm in the right place. All right? And just a side note, when people come to you for help, when people come to you for advice, uh, you're going to have lots of stuff to share with them, okay? And when you share the quips and you share the latest quote from a certain author, or when you share those kinds of things, the worldly wisdom with people, it's, it's, it's sometimes very good right? But just remember, it carries all the authority of Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) But when you share the word of God with somebody, it carries the very authority of God himself. So always bring that, get to know the word of God and bring the word of God uh, to people. Hide it in your heart so that you can share it with others. So the word of the Lord comes to John. We're told that he lives in the wilderness. He's not part of the establishment that Luke just mentioned. Right? He's not part of the secular political leadership of the day. He's not part of the spiritual Judaic leadership of the day. And Luke shows that John, 
is not really under their jurisdiction. And that's why prophets tend to walk out of the woods. They don't owe anything to Caesar. They don't belong to the temple. They belong to the Lord. So they can call the nation to repentance because they're not corrupted by the culture. And they can call the people of God to repentance of sin. In fact, in Luke 1, Zechariah, his father prophesies what John's ministry will be like. He says, he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the power of the Spirit, and Spirit in the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. You, you see that repetition of the word turn. He's going to turn people's hearts. He's going to turn people from being disobedient. He's going to turn Israelites back to the Lord their God. So now John's all grown up. How's he turning things around? Look what it says, verse 3. And he went into all the region of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Three big ideas, sin, repentance, forgiveness. We're going old school today. You guys ready? One, our problem is sin. And we're not sinners by choice only. We're sinners by nature. Psalm 58, 7, uh, David says that we're sinners, we're wicked from our mother's womb. And scripture confirms over and over that we're born in the same condition. Like David, we're all natural born sinners. We're all Adam's sons and daughters, and his sin nature has been transmitted down the line to us. So by the very nature of our life itself, we are we're sinful, we're self-centered, we're proud. And the result of that is we commit acts of sin. And the only way to deal with the acts of sin is to deal with the nature of sin. So our problem is sin. It corrupts our lives. It corrupts our relationships. It corrupts our work. It corrupts our world. So what's the answer? He tells us. Number two, the answer is repentance. And we're going to deal with that more thoroughly toward the end of the sermon. But just briefly, repentance is turning your life around. That's the title of the sermon. Turn your life around. Repentance is a turning of the direction of your life and the affections of your heart. So you become oriented to God and love him and love the things that God loves. Yeah? Ooh, all right. Old school. Feels heavy in here. All right. I was just looking for like a fun story to start off. Vince, we just dove right into the hard stuff. <laughs> Repentance is turning from sin to God by faith through Jesus. And this is all demonstrated through baptism. Let me explain baptism to you briefly. Uh, the Jews would have practiced baptism in a few different ways. First of all, for Jews, it was a regular ritual purification, a washing, a cleansing. But also, for those who were Gentile, non-Jewish converts to Judaism, they would have a proselyte baptism. And they'd be baptized to identify themselves with the people of God, and they'd be baptized to outwardly portray the inward cleansing of sin. So for John to baptize for repentance, Jews, that was really unusual. For a few reasons. First of all, he's not like a working Levite. He's not part of the priesthood at the temple of Jerusalem. He's not working on behalf of all that. Instead, he just walks out of the woods. And like an old school prophet, he starts preaching. People come, people repent, and he baptizes Jews for repentance. All very unusual, right? And it goes on to say, as it is written in the book of the words, Isaiah the prophet. So Luke's going to go back and he's going to quote a prophecy from hundreds of years before from Isaiah chapter 40. And this prophecy is all about how this, this guy is going to come and prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And, and Luke's point is that John is this guy that was prophesied about hundreds of years ago. And here's what he says. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. God is going to come as our savior. He's going to save us from sin and the consequences of sin. He's going to save us from death and damnation. So it's important that we have an idea of what sin is. Right here at the offset, let's talk about sin for a second. Sin is our condition by nature. It includes our thoughts, our words, our deeds. There are sins of omission. Anybody know what that is? He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin, the Bible says. Good things that we fail to do. Also, there's sins of commission, the bad things that we end up doing. Sin includes all of our self-centered motivations. It includes all of our spiritual imperfections. It includes all of our transgressions against God's holy law and his character. And all of this started, if you remember, back in a garden. You know, God creates the world. It's in harmony. It's beautiful. In the middle of the garden, he puts people and he puts two trees. Here's the tree of life. Here's the tree of knowledge. You can do this my way or you can do this your way. Choose. Here's a choice. And what's the story? You guys know the story. The serpent comes and says, mm, has God really said this? You know, God's holding out on you. The truth is, if you will just do this, then you will become this. If you will taste this tree, you will become like God. It was the first self-help book. One step to becoming like God. <laughs> and Adam and Eve believed the lie. They ate the fruit and everything started falling apart. Immediately, their relationship with God was broken. Their relationship with one another was broken. Their relationship to creation was broken. The whole world's falling apart, and sin is the big problem. And John says that repentance of sin is a big part of the solution. So John comes out of the woods. He's preaching repentance, preparing the hearts of people for the coming of their Savior. Let's keep going. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. In case you didn't catch it, viper is a slightly negative term. <laughs> Especially if you're Jewish, you know the story of Genesis, you know what vipers represent, right? The snake in the garden, prototypical of sin and Satan and rebellion and folly. And these are people who come out to hear him preach, and he is very stern and harsh with them. I think it's interesting. There's a bit of a revival of that in our culture right now. Have you guys noticed that? Anybody see the Golden Globes? Ricky Gervais's whole thing at the beginning of it. If you haven't seen it, go on YouTube. It's probably worth a watch. But Ricky Gervais, basically at the beginning of the Golden Globes, says to everybody, he's just calling out people, man. It's, it's hardcore. Kenny's the one who told me about it, and I was cracking up laughing. At the very end, he says, listen, guys, when you get your award today, don't come up here and give us a political speech. Nobody cares. You're an actor. Come up here, get your little trophy, say thank you, and walk off. And the clip went viral. And even the people in the audience, they're like shocked, but they're loving it and they're laughing at it. Have you noticed it's like novels, self-help books? If you read Fight Club or anything by Chuck Palahniuk, it's like, you're not a special snowflake. Life is suffering. You know, it's like, don't believe all this millennial madness. You know, it's bull. Like, honestly, it, it, I, I'm reading a self-help book that I got. It was highly recommended to me. I can't even tell you the title in a dignified way because I'm standing in a pulpit right now. 
but there are curse words in the title of the book. And that's basically what he says. Life is suffering. You're not special. I'm like, this is self-help nowadays. This is what people want <laughs> to hear. We want, we want somebody to come along and, and give us tough love. Tell us the truth sometime. Hold up a harsh mirror and say, hey, here, here's a taste of reality. You're living in a dream world. And that's, that's what John is basically doing here. John, John is, John is he's telling people exactly as it is. And here's what he says. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Dang, John. Ricky Gervais has nothing on John, right? And here's why he's so furious. The people who are coming out to hear him are very religious. And John calls them a brood of vipers. What tends to happen when we think of repentance, what do we think of? We, get, we think of somebody repenting of their sin, turning from gluttony, turning from adultery, turning from being a drunkard, if you're a thief, whatever. Then you repent of that. And you go and you live a nice, pious life. That's only half true. The other half is that religious people need to repent of their religion. These people that come out to John, they're devout people. They've taken days off work. They've come to hear a fiery preacher out in the wilderness. They want to learn about God. They want to repent of their sins. They want to be baptized. And he rebukes them and calls them a brood of vipers. Why? Because they were religious. Listen, the most offensive sins of all often are religious sins. In Philippians 3, Paul calls them garbage, rubbish, dung. And he's repenting of his own sin as he says it. Religion, religion is man's effort to please God. Religion is man's effort to connect with God apart from Jesus. Religion is man's effort to earn something from God by works and performance and duty and holiness and piety and legacy. Religion is a disdain to God. Because God is a God of grace. God gives not because anyone's deserving, but because all are sinners and all are ill-deserving. God gives love. God gives salvation and mercy. And God gives grace as a free gift. But religion wants to earn so it can be smug and righteous and proud. I remember several years ago, I got to uh, go to Jerusalem, Israel, and all this. And, And one thing you notice is that there were many devout people, and there were all these devout religious rules, what you wear, where you go, what you eat, what you drink. Um, there was a kosher McDonald's there. Kosher McDonald's meaning um, you go to one side of the restaurant, you get the bun and the cheese. Then you walk around separately, and you pay for the meat, and they, they hand you the meat, and you put it on the bun and the cheese because it's kosher food. And there's an obscure scripture in the Levitical law about not cooking a baby cow in its mama's milk. And God forbid, what if the meat came from the baby cow and the cheese came from the mom? We can't mix those together. Therefore, two sides of the restaurant, kosher McDonald's, right? I walk onto an elevator in the hotel. I'm going to go up to, I think it was fifth or sixth floor. And I go in and all the buttons are pushed. It's like Will Ferrell and Elf came in and just, ah, you know, <laughs> like, oh man, here we go. So five floors to go. So, you know, ding, stops at every floor. Ding, I finally get off. I go to my room. A few hours later, I come back out. I get in the elevator. Same thing. I'm like, okay, who did this? Who is the kid running around here pushing all the buttons? 
I asked somebody about it and they said, no, no, no. It's the Shabbat elevator. Today's Saturday. Huh, it is Saturday. Yeah, it's, it's work. You, you know, you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath and, and you can't push the button. You know, they tear their toilet paper the night before the Sabbath. Because it's not, it's too much work to tear it, but it's not too much work to use it. <laughs> Why all the rules? Because if you obey them, then you're somehow closer to God. You're holier, you're distinct, you're better than everyone else. If you go there one day, and I hope we do, I would love to go back and take a trip, you'll see uh, men wearing hats. It shows that they're sons of Abraham. And you'll see all these different colored hats that show not only that they're sons of Abraham, but that they're under different rabbis, right? And each different color hat means a different rabbi. So not only am I a son of Abraham, but I'm, I'm better than the other sons of Abraham because I'm under the best rabbi and we have the best rules and we follow the best traditions and we're the most devout and we're the most holy. And John says, brood of vipers. And the same thing happens in Christianity. We take these precious rules from God, and we turn them into our faith and replace God with them. And we get legalistic hearts, or we add rules to it. Oh my gosh, we subscribe to those rules. We make up extra rules. We follow them like our lives depend on them. We follow good rules that are there with these legalistic and judgy hearts. Religion is the love of tradition in place of Jesus. There are people who would much rather cling to their tradition, their history, their ancestry, their language, their laws than Christ. And John says that is all an offense to God. It's, it's the worst offense of all. And what tends to happen is religious people call sinners to repent of their sin, but nobody calls religious people to repent of their religion. And that's why people are attracted to Jesus in ways they're not attracted to religion. And that's why other people are repelled by Jesus in ways that they're not repelled by religion. And here's the problem with religion. It ends in either pride or despair. Because you follow all the rules, and you kick butt, and you're doing great. And what happens? You get very elevated in yourself, and you look down your nose at the people who are not following the rules. You get proud. And that's a big sin. It's what got Satan kicked out of heaven. Or you fail. The law crushes you. You realize you can't do it. Then you despair. I'm not good enough. God will never love me. God will never accept me. Religion ends in either pride or despair. But when you hear about Jesus, how he lived the life that you have not lived, cannot live, will never be able to live on your own, that he died the death you should have died, and that he rose to give you the gift you cannot earn, then you're liberated from religion. And some of you are here and you need to repent of your sin. And some of you are here and you need to repent of your religion. And I'll admit that most days I need to repent of both. And John does all this right here in chapter 3 at the Jordan River. And he calls those who are religiously devout a brood of vipers. Then he anticipates their rebuttal. And like a, like a good presidential candidate. And he says, and don't say we've got Abraham as our father. Don't say that, he says. Here's the key. Um... Was Abraham a Jew or a Gentile? He's a Gentile, actually, if you think about it. He's a Gentile. He came from Ur of the Chaldeans. He's from the same area where the people lived who had built the Tower of Babel. He was not a follower of Yahweh. Uh, his family made idols. That's, that's the line Abraham came from. And yet God came to him in grace. God revealed himself in grace to Abraham. And then it says, Abraham trusted, believed by faith in the Lord. And when he believed, it was credited to him for what? 
Righteousness. Righteousness came to Father Abraham the same way it comes to you and me. It comes to all of us by faith, not by works. By works of Jesus, not by our own performance. By his perfection, not by our tradition. Ephesians 2 classically says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. So when John rebukes them and says, Don't tell me Abraham's your dad. Abraham trusted the coming of the Messiah. You got to know that. You're not saved by your birth. You're saved by new birth. You're not saved by who your father is. You're saved by who your heavenly father is. It's not your tradition. It's not your works. It's not your ancestry. It's not your race. It's not your nationality. It's not your denomination. It's all about your savior. It's all about Jesus. And then he proceeds. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to. Soldiers asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, live a life of repentance. Let me start winding down with a, a lengthy explanation of repentance. Um, repentance begins with conviction. You acknowledge your sinner as the first step of faith, admitting your great need for a savior. Conviction can come through scripture. It can come through friends. It can come through the Holy Spirit just directly in your heart. It can come through your conscience, come through preaching. You realize that you're not living in alignment with God's character. You realize you're not living in submission and obedience to his commands. So there's conviction. You feel bad, right? And there's, there's some acknowledgement in your conscience and in your heart that something's wrong. You need to change. A lot of people feel like there's something wrong, but they don't want to change anything, right? Conviction says, no, I, I, I'm ready. I'm, I need to, I feel like there's something wrong, but it moves on. The next step is confession. You talk about it. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you talk about it with your friends. You talk about it in your gospel community on mission. If you're in a DNA group where you're being held accountable and walking closely with two or three others, you talk about it. Talk about it with your family, with your spouse. Talk about it with your kids. Repent to your kids. You really want to disciple your kids well, start there. You talk about it. So conviction, I feel like something's wrong. And then secondly, confession, I talk about it. I acknowledge it. I bring it out in the open so I'm not living a hypocritic lifestyle, right? Three, repentance. Number three, there's repentance. Repentance starts in the mind. It's a change of mind. Remember, we, Romans says we exchange the truth of God for a lie, just like back in the garden. That's where all sin comes from. So repentance is, is, is when the truth of God challenges the lie, the distortion of reality that you've believed, and you turn from a false belief, and you turn to God, and you turn your life around. All of a sudden, Jesus is the center of your life. You're not the center of your life anymore. You, like, you, you have a heart change. You want to do what pleases God, not what satisfies your selfish desires. Repentance is literally turning it's turning from God. You're, you're sitting there and you're fixated on sin and your back is toward God and it's turning and it's fixing your eyes on him and fixing your heart and your affections on him and putting your back to sin in every area of your life. That's why sin is a continual ongoing thing. You know, a lot of self-help books will try to tell you how to turn your life around. 
Here's how you can help yourself. Here's what you can do in order to become. Does that sound familiar? The lie of the serpent. It's, it's viper talk, man. And here's how you can really turn your life around. You ready? Surrender. Stop trying to be in control. Turn your life around from all that. Turn towards the only solution for everything in your life. Turn to Jesus. Turn to him. Look him in the eyes and say, I want what you want. I surrender. I give you this life. And that is not something you just do once. Some of you have been lied to and told that you repent one time and you just go live however you want. That's not what scripture says. Repentance is an ongoing lifestyle. It's continually growing in grace and Christ-likeness. It's something that continues until Jesus returns and finishes the job. Here's why. The more you walk with God, the more you get to know him, the more holy you realize he is, and the more you see yourself and your own brokenness in light of a holy God. Guess what that leads to? More repentance. You need to repent. You need to turn. Oh, man, I didn't even realize this was a problem. And you're peeling back the onion and you're getting deeper. And you're like, oh, man, there's even more stuff in there that I didn't realize. But the good news is it doesn't crush you because you've already been loved. You've already been accepted. He's already set his affection on you. He's already given you a new identity in Christ. And he says, no, 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 just keep walking to me. You're not going to be crushed. That sin doesn't define you. That thing doesn't define you. You're loved. You're safe. You're secure in me. I'm going to do the work in your life. Can you just surrender again? Now I showed you this part. Can you surrender that part to me? I showed you this. Can you trust me with it? So when it comes to this issue of repentance, it's the whole of a Christian's life. You never move past it. In fact, it's how you move forward in your walk with Christ. Each step of repentance is a step away from something that's holding you back and a step toward God. Each moment of repentance is moving you further from your own control, your own self-reliance, your independence, and moving you closer to him and trusting his control and relying upon him and depending upon him. Some of you have been wrongly taught about this. I just want to talk about what repentance is and what it isn't. Repentance is a lifestyle for the Christian. It's, it's, it's good news because it's turning from something that would destroy and diminish your life and turning to the one who can save it, the one who loves you and gave himself for you. The Protestant Reformation started out with Martin Luther nailing 95 theses to the wall of the Cathedral of Wittenberg and the first line of the 95 theses. You guys know what it said? I need coffee. And was, my throat was like, you're done. You need... You're talking too fast, Vince. I'm not used to this. First line, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. We live in a time when people are, are not called to repentance. They're called to tolerance and diversity. And don't get me wrong, like, obviously, to love, to be gracious and accommodating to people is a good value. But to say, well, hey, look, your finances, your sexuality, your religion, your God, your ideology, your perspective, that's all just okay. It's not okay. That's viper talk. We're called to repentance, and we're called to call other people to repentance, not because we hate them, but because we love them. Not because we, we can accommodate their sin, but so that we can see them saved from their sin so they can live a new life in Christ. Repentance is the great gift God gives to his people. Why would we hold that back from others? Why are we so scared to talk about sin? 
It's because radical individualism has taken the place in the center of our society, and God forbid we challenge anybody's perspective on anything. If you, the moment you do that, you're proud, you're arrogant. Nah, man, the gospel humbles you where you can't be proud, you can't be arrogant. And if you're challenging people out of pride or you're looking down your nose at them, you're the problem. But from a place of hum- humble, gospel-centered humility, aren't we supposed to share the truth of God with people? Are we supposed to throw the truth out to make people feel comfortable? I don't want to do that. Many of us get so caught up with everything going on out there, and we get so caught up with everything going on in here in our heart. We get so caught up in our feelings that we always want to hear sermons that apply to how we feel, and we always want to hear sermons that will confirm our biases, and we don't really want to hear sermons like this one. (laughs) I already know about this, Vince. It's Christianity 101. Can you tell me something new? You know, Disney should have just kept it with the old Lion King and the old Aladdin. They keep saying the same thing. It's boring. It's CGI now. It's not as good as the original. And this sermon sounds like a remake of the Lion King. I've heard it. I want something fresh. I want something that wows me. When did we move beyond the simplicity of the gospel? Don't we realize that this is still our biggest problem? The brokenness out there is a result of sin. The brokenness in here is a result of sin. People sin against us. We sin against people. We sin against ourselves and against God and against creation and all of the war and disease and anxiety and mental illness and poverty and guilt and shame and divorce and abuse and death. And all of it ultimately is a result of a sinful, broken world that's falling apart at the seams. And sometimes our lives feel like we're falling apart at the seams. And the answer isn't cooler, hipper messages. The answer is the same message that it's been since the beginning. We need to turn around to the only one who can pull it back together. Jesus came to save people from their sins. The gospel is all about how God came to rescue and renew all of creation in and through the work of Christ Jesus. And that salvation he's bringing starts with us. It starts with us seeing our need, admitting our need. It starts with us crying out for a savior. It starts with us repenting and believing the gospel. And as we change, we begin to live differently. And as we begin to live differently, we bring that change into the world around us. Our biggest problem is sin. Repentance is God's first step in giving us the medicine that will heal us and enable us to bring healing into our world. All of life is repentance. Now, really briefly, I've got to talk about what repentance is not. Because I think we have a lot of misconceptions about repentance, and we never talk about it, so let's do it now, okay? There's a few counterfeits of repentance. True repentance is not mere confession. You know, where you say sorry, and then you keep doing it. Some of you are married to that person. (laughs) I've been that person. Believe me, ask Nancy. Sorry, 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 sorry. You're not sorry, right? Repentance is changing. Not just confessing what you need to do. Secondly, true repentance is not worldly sorrow. Paul tells Corinthians that they're practicing worldly sorrow. This is where you feel bad, but you don't change. The Holy Spirit doesn't come in. There's not a new heart. There's not a new life. There's not new desires. There's not a new Lord of your life. Listen, when anyone does something wrong, we feel bad. Unless you're a psychopath, right? You feel bad. Guilt is hardwired into our fallen humanity. Non-Christians feel bad all the time. And what do we see? We have this sort of cultural confessional 
Where if you do a bad thing and you're a celebrity, you go on TV and you sit with Barbara Walters or you sit with Oprah or you go on The View and you cry and you say you feel bad and you give a bunch of money to charity and then everybody says, well, they felt bad. I'm glad it's over. I'm going to watch their next movie now, right? That's, that's not repentance. That's worldly sorrow. You might feel bad. You might turn from one thing, but you're not turning to God in that thing's place. Everybody can have worldly sorrow. Okay. Thirdly, true repentance is not pagan repentance. Pagan repentance is where you're rep, like you're repenting so that God will bless you, right? That's what the pagans would do. You set up an altar, you worship this God, you repent, you turn from something, you say, I want to be healthy. I want to be rich. I want to be successful. I want to get married. I want my kids to finally obey me. I'll repent. I'll tell God, I'm sorry. Then he'll give me what I really want. That's pagan repentance. It's trying to manipulate God to be good to you. God is good to you. You don't need to manipulate him, right? Four, true repentance is not generalizing repentance. Generalizing repentance is where someone commits a sin and you say, hey, look, what you did was wrong. You hurt so-and-so. And And they'll say, yeah, I know. But nobody's perfect. You know, we all kind of sin all the time. And, you know, I say I'm sorry to God once a day. It just kind of covers all of it. Um, (laughs) Repentance is not generalized. It's specific. It's repenting for specific things. Things. You don't just talk about sin in general. You talk about particular things in your life. Not, I'm just struggling with things. No, this thing right here needs to change. This problem area, I want to grow here. This needs to stop. This needs to die. I need to change. True repentance is not generalizing repentance. Lastly, true repentance is not excuse making. Don't you hate it when people are apologizing to you and they're like, yeah, man, I'm really sorry I did that. But, you know, when you did this thing and you just like void their apology to you. They even like turn it around and kind of like subtly blame you. That's not an apology, right? We hate it when people do that to us, but we do that to God. I sin because my genetics predispose me toward such and such. Alcoholism, gluttony, certain sexual desires, being a jerk, right? It's like, oh yeah, I'm Italian. We get angry. I'm Greek, we get angry. I'm Latin, we get angry. I'm Irish, we get angry. It's, it's weird. It's like, it's amazing. Every group has this exception clause. <laughs> or there's the personality thing now. Well, it's just my personality. You know, I'm an eight. I'm a challenger. <laughs> we're just unpleasant and we're harsh. That's who we are as people, right? Is it ENTP, INTJ? I'm a J-E-R-K, you know, it's just, it's my personality type. We come up with all these excuses, right? And it's like when you're a child, you see kids, right? Like you talk to, talking to your kid, you're like, why did you hit them? They made me do it, dad. You're telling me they took your fist and they hit themselves in the face with it. That's what you're saying? They made you do it? No, they didn't make you do it. You chose to. Everything you do is a choice. Starts when we're little. We have excuses. We blame shift. We change the subject. And repentance says, no, I'm a sinner. I'm the problem. I'm really broken apart from God's grace. And I'm really sorry. I need to change. Will you please forgive me? I believe Jesus forgives me, but I need help, Jesus. I really want to change deep down. I still need a savior. I still need to get down on my knees more than ever. So those are some false forms, some counterfeit forms of repentance. And here's the other thing John says. Here's one way you can know it's true repentance. He says, keep, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. True repentance will bear fruit. 
Not only will you experience freedom, freedom from the legalism and the lawlessness and the patterns that drive your life. Not only will you not continue in broken patterns, but now you'll begin some new life-giving patterns. The crowd asks John, what should we do? And this threw me off at first because, you know, it's, we're a very gospel-centered church. And part of the gospel is it's all about what Jesus has done for us. So I was reading this, trying to read it with fresh eyes. And I thought, man, if somebody asked me, what, what should we do? Vince, what shall we do? I'd say, you're asking the wrong question. It's all about what he's done for you. Just believe that. And then it'll change your life. And, and that's partly true. But John's not afraid to call them to action. The gospel bears fruit in your life. You know that verse we were reading in Ephesians 2? For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. Verse 10. For we are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So yeah, you're not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. And when you repent from sin and you turn to God, when you live a life of repentance, it bears fruit. Here's another way of thinking about it. We talked about this at our GCM this week, but an old friend of mine said this, and this has been so helpful to me over the years. The law says do, the gospel says done, and the spirit empowers us to obey. Write that down, memorize it, take a picture, something. It's good. Here's why. Okay, the law says do. If you just stop there, you know what you have? Religion, legalism. Do, do, do. Bunch of sermons going on in the city right now. Stop there, unfortunately. It's all about what you do for God. The gospel comes along and says, the law says do, but the gospel says done. It's not just what would Jesus do, it's what did Jesus do. Then what would Jesus do? We need the gospel. But if we stop there, here's what we get. Well, the law says do. Jesus did it all. The gospel says done. Therefore, I don't have to do anything. So you move from legalism to lawlessness. Now you live a fruitless life. Hanging around, going going to church on Sundays, you know, when you feel like it. And even when you feel like it. And maybe sharing the gospel once a year with somebody who God like really like makes super obvious for you. (laughs) Somebody comes up to you crying and says, what do I need to do to be saved? And you're like... Oh, I will now share the gospel. But when you have that third part, the spirit empowers you to obey. You have a gospel-centered life. Not one that's driven by guilt, shame, fear into the law. And not one that's freed by the gospel to do nothing. But one that's re-motivated by the gospel where your heart is actually transformed inside your chest to want to do the will of God for new reasons. Not because you earn anything by it, but because you've already been freely given everything. And now you want to obey. And that doesn't just mean not doing bad things. It means doing a lot of good work for God. When you live a life of repentance, it will bear fruit. How's this going for you? How is the fruit showing up in your life? Where's the fruit of ongoing repentance showing up in your life? Where's the fruit of unrepentant sin showing up in your life? What's God calling you to repent of today? It's not a, it doesn't have to be like the sirens. Woo, repent. This guy did a big sin. Maybe it is today. But repentance is a lot more like, I've, I've seen several of you as we've been preaching, looking down and checking your phones. 
You get those little notifications multiple times throughout the day. That's repentance. Repentance is not the siren. It's not the fire alarm. Repentance is just as often and frequent as you get those notifications on your cell phone. Oh, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I think that? Father, I need you. Change my heart. It's that simple. It's that simple. And then it's like stepping out and saying, man, this keeps happening. Okay, I need to put some things in place. Father, help me. Give me the right thing so it's not legalistic. It's not from a heart of religious pride, but it's for you. It's for love. It's in response to the gospel. <sighs> Were we over time? Okay, now with that being said, uh, let, me, let me wrap up with baptism. As he's preaching all this, who comes down to be baptized? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to step all over this because this is what Kenny's going to be preaching on next week. So I won't spend much time on it. But just to remind us of an important truth as we close up here. Jesus is not being baptized for the repentance of his sin. Jesus is being baptized for at least two reasons. One, to identify with the ministry of John and to show how he fulfills it. And two, to foreshadow his own death, burial, and resurrection so that our repentance is even possible. For the wages of sin is death, Romans says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to me. There's a lot of people who say a lot of things, but let me tell you what the Bible says. The penalty for sin is death. And either we die or he dies. Either way, the price must be paid. And so in being baptized, Jesus is showing that all your repentance and your cleansing that you desire and the new life you're longing for and the being able even to turn your life around, I'm going to make that possible. His baptism is all about me. Baptism is all about Jesus. So when we baptize people in New City, which we'll be doing soon, we already have some people signed up, very excited. When we baptize people, it's all about Jesus. It's not about religion or tradition. It's not about doing this so that God would love you or so God would save you or so God would forgive you or so that God would care for you. It's all about Jesus because it's in Jesus that he has. It's in Jesus that, that your sins are forgiven. Baptism is a beautiful reminder of the gospel. And after baptism, we come together regularly on Sundays and we worship and we remember the resurrection and we come around the table and we take communion and remember that he lived that perfect life and he died a death in our place. And we remember the good news of the gospel and we apply it to one another's hearts and lives again and again because we need those constant reminders more frequently even than those notifications come in on our phone. And then we're sent back out into this dark world to be the light. And let me say this real quick. We're, we're to be the light not by being religious and by putting a stench in the nostril of this world's nose for God. Okay? We're, we're, we're called to go out into this world and live lives of repentance, independence upon the Holy Spirit. Not lives of pride and religious arrogance, but lives of humility, lives of service, loving, serving, sharing the gospel with our words and our deeds. John tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And they say, how? What should we do? And he starts talking about being generous to the needs around us. John's preaching here shows us what the rest of the gospel of Luke is going to show over and over again, that the gospel has social and economic implications. And when the gospel's in your heart, it will change how you vote. It will change how you give. It will change how you love. It will change how you serve. And it will change your entire life more and more day by day. So in closing, I want you to close your eyes. And I'm just going to ask you some questions. How's that going for you? Are you repenting more? Are you living in greater dependence upon God? 
Are you walking more and more in step with the Spirit each day? Are you pressing more into community? Are you living more generously? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? We're going to take some time to respond by examining our own hearts. Some of us are going to come down here and and get prayed for. And I want to encourage you, whatever's holding you back from getting prayed for today, don't let it come down and get prayed for. Some of us are going to gather around the table and feast on the life of Christ given for us freely. Some of us are going to sing along and worship and quietly reflect as God speaks to us. But I want to challenge you, don't let this moment pass you by. Take some time to let the Holy Spirit highlight some things in your heart. Take some time to repent and believe the gospel. And if you have not been baptized yet, well, let's get you baptized. Come talk to me. I'd love to get you signed up. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this day. Thanks for your word. Thanks for your messengers that come and boldly proclaim the basics of the gospel in the face of difficulty. And to tell people they actually need to turn their lives around. And we know it. We know we need to turn our lives around. That's why the self-help books are the biggest section in the bookstores. Or on Amazon. Because nobody goes to bookstores. But we know we want to turn our lives around. The problem is we just want to do it our own way with our own knowledge. It's the oldest lie in the book. Father, thank you that your truth highlights that and confronts it and gives us the opportunity to believe. Again, just as simple as it was in the beginning, two trees, my way or your way, you get to choose. There's a lot of us standing before two trees right now. There's some people who are for the first time and your spirit's drawing them to yourself. And there's some people who have been walking with you for a very, very long time, but life has built up and there's a lot of their heart that isn't repentant and isn't reliant upon you and the gospel of grace anymore. I pray that you convict us of sin as you do and gently your kindness leads us to repentance. Thank you that you're not abrasive. Thank you that you're gracious and loving. And I pray that in these next few moments, some people would take that next step. They would be able to take the medicine that you provide by by taking a step of repentance which is simply just surrendering, turning around and saying, God, I want you. I need a savior. I need a savior in this area of my life. A long time ago, I prayed for a savior for eternal salvation, but my finances need saving right now. My, my marriage needs saving right now. My sexuality needs saving right now. There's a lot of stuff in my heart that needs saving right now. I've got doubts. I don't even know where to turn. I don't know where to believe. I'm confused. I feel like I'm walking around in the, the dark. Turn the light up in this room right now. Turn the light up in my heart, God. Holy Spirit, I pray you would move in this place and touch people's lives. I pray that people would be praying for one another in this place, that you would break down some strongholds in people's lives, that some patterns would be broken, that there would be freedom in this place by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.